I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. On Thursday, April the 30th, Congressman Filimon Bella hosted a telephone town hall to provide an update on the novel coronavirus pandemic. In part one of a two-part telephone town hall, COVID-19 survivor Ivy Arroyo shared details about surviving the disease after being on a ventilator. It is the fact that there is no way to pinpoint how we become infected. The best assumption in my case is the transmission is what is called a fulmite infection. And that's just touching an inanimate object like a gas pump, scratching your face or whatever it may be, and you become the host. Within three days, I went from taking an online survey to struggling with breathing and being admitted to the Fulgerville emergency room, being sedated and intubated and on a ventilator. The next thing I know, I wake up attached to a ventilator in a different IC unit with no memory or knowledge of my surroundings, and I'm in Scott and White in Temple, Texas. In addition to the physical toll the virus took on my body, losing 25% of my body weight, certainly not recommended, you know, going about losing weight this way, the battle also took a toll on me, mentally. In the course of this ordeal, I experienced many effects, including confusion, Helplessness, hallucinations, anxiety, only to name a few. The reality is that the medical doctors and the staff were doing everything in their power to save me from this unknown enemy. And my family was quarantined. There was no communication. I was at home. They were at home hanging on one or two phone calls a day to let them know what was happening with me. From a great decline in my health to hanging by a thread, they were forced to start making plans come, and that was to never see me again. My diagnosis was dismal to say the least. The fact that patients on a ventilator have a 20 to 25% chance of recovery, compounded by my having type 2 diabetes, reduced my chances down to about 4 to 6% survival. My family never lost faith, and they told the medical staff that all I needed was a 1% chance, and my fight and determination would take it from there. During my time in ICU, I was surrounded by death. Inasmuch as I was in and out, I could know what was happening. And what I experienced in that hospital was hot, hard to process, let alone describe. The only reason I am here today it's because my body had finally had enough of these tests, treatments, and all I could do is rip the ventilator tube from my throat. Hence my voice, which I don't recommend. But my body took it from there with a tremendous amount of oxygen. I attribute my unprecedented speedy recovery <clears throat> faster than they had any, than any of them have ever witnessed or heard of. My faith, quoting Psalm 91 and its promises, their prayer support literally hundreds, what turns out to be thousands of people who I don't even know. The truth, valiant warriors in all of this are the doctors, healthcare workers who tirelessly and lovingly cared for me. And let's not forget the value of our first responders. I have tested negative, but that result is only good for that particular strain of the virus. And at that point in time, 
any new mutation of the virus could take and infect me again. And I could have a completely different outcome. These doctors were trying uh, you know, hydro, hydroxychloroquine, which was normally used for malaria. You know, understanding ventilators. What people don't understand, people can die almost within minutes after getting off of a ventilator. So all of these things, when people want to go back and go out to the beach and not practice these safety issues and measures set forth by our leaders, this is a tragic situation fixing to happen. And as we begin to release these things and people become more and more negligent, we are going to see an increase of deaths and a tremendous amount of heartache. So, Congressman, thank you. Leaders, thank you for everything that you're doing. I know you're doing your very best to pull all this thing together. But the fact of the matter is, is people better listen. Once again, there are no test runs in life, and you will not push a reset button after you die. Later, Ivy Arroyo spoke to Steve Taylor about the experience and gave additional details. How, how long have you been out of hospital? Oh, okay. Okay. So you're getting lots of rest. Well, I'm getting lots of rest and doing a lot of rehabilitation. Yes. What does that involve? Well, just uh, at this point, I'm starting to do some walking, which is, you know, really, really huge. You know, in the process, lost the ability to walk. And uh, so between uh, my husband, David, and the boys, and, you know, we've worked on balance and uh, a couple other things. Um, do you follow football much? American football or soccer? American football. A little bit. A little bit. After rehab, I've got my two boys trained with a gentleman named Tim Crowder. Okay. And uh, he's a... Uh, he played for the defensive end for University of Texas when they won the national championship in 2005. And then he went on to play with the Denver Broncos and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And anyway, he... He trains college and pro players, and so he gave me a call, which is really amazing. And so he took it upon himself to develop a, a therapy plan. Oh, okay. That normal, you know, pro athletes and college athletes go through. Hmm. Obviously, a little more toned down because of obviously my age and and all of this, you know. So when you have supporting cast like these guys and a tremendous love of a great husband and, and boys and and family and friends man it's just there's, there's nowhere to go but up well that's fantastic that's great uh, that you've got that support system um you said uh, at my age what can i ask your age i'm 57 57 wow and you live in austin or flugerville Yes, and you were transported to Scott and White in Temple. Yeah, actually, I've got my my husband David here. Yeah, and he he would better tell you, you know, the process between the time I arrived in Flugerville mm-hmm. and the things that transpired because 
you know, there, there's a period there, Steve, where, buddy, even today, and I just can't remember a thing. Right. I mean, it's it's lost. So let me introduce you to my, my husband, David, Dave yep. Decker. Okay. Hi, Steve. Hi, David. Hi, Steve. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call and, and telling me okay. um, what happened there with Ivy. Okay, so, <clears throat> I mean, he started getting symptoms on the 19th of March, and on the 26th was when he woke up having difficulty breathing and went to the emergency room here there's a small baylor scott and white hospital here in pflugerville mm -hmm. and they immediately hospitalized him on the 26th which was a thursday and then he was getting just progressively declining as far as needing more oxygen and um you know all his numbers as you know, his, to his medical test. And then sometime in the middle of the night, on Sunday night, the 29th, uh, they had to intubate him and put him on a ventilator. It declined to that stage. And the next morning, they started talking to me about they were going to transport him up to Baylor, Scott & White, and Temple. Mm -hmm. The small hospital here in Pflugerville doesn't actually have an ICU. And once he got on that ventilator, he needed to be in an ICU. So they sent him up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he stayed on the ventilator for 12 days. Um, no responsiveness whatsoever for eight days. So it was just like he kind of just plateaued at a real low level for eight days. And then the last four days, he slowly started getting better. And then he came off the ventilator, and within a matter of four more days, or not even that, three or four days, they moved him to a regular room because he no longer needed the oxygen. Mm -hmm. And uh, two days later, they transported him to a rehab hospital here in Round Rock, mm -hmm. just about five minutes from the house. So that was kind of in a very condensed, rundown version the ordeal how, how it went through but uh we we felt very very fortunate to be that he was sent to that hospital my understanding that's a respiratory specialist hospital and it's a training hospital and they had access to a lot of the more aggressive things than um you know like the small hospital here in pflugerville they couldn't have handled him once he got to that more critical stage right. so um we just felt like you know it was very god was watching over us the whole time um it was really rough because you know obviously we couldn't go see him we couldn't talk to him we couldn't do anything and we would wait around for one or two phone calls from the doctors each day to give us an update um you know and kind of going off the, the no news is good news because they told us if something took a turn, we would be contacted immediately. So, you know, what you want to hear. It was just one of those things. So it's kind of difficult. But, so that's about the rundown of the, the events that happened. So. Yes. Uh, back to Ivy. Um, well, let, let me just ask you, in, these, in, the in the virtual town hall meeting, he said that, that you were really being told to make plans for, to never see him again well about probably the first two days that he got up there to baylor scott and white 
they started asking us, you know, you need to make plans mm. because from what they had seen, people who had had gone into the ventilator as quickly as he had, um, the prognosis really wasn't good. Mm -hmm. They would never give us a percentage, mm -hmm. but they told us to start making, you know, what what are his funeral wishes? What is this? Mm -hmm. um, you know, finances and everything, starting to get everything aligned. Um, just because, I mean, it was still fairly early in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, we were we were several weeks behind the, the coast, mm -hmm. so... Um, he was one of the earlier patients they were dealing with. But, you know, I mean, it's it's just one of those things. Once he got on that ventilator, they really didn't know if he was going to come back. Right. So they just started giving us, you know, all of the things. And I have to admit, the hospital was great. They had a, well, I had a pastor calling me. Um, social workers were calling us. Um they had like an entire team trying to navigate this virtual scenario, trying to deal with families who couldn't come and see their loved ones. So I thought the hospital was doing an excellent job, you know, doing the best they could, trying to make make it a, as good a situation as they could. But, but he, um, yeah, he also said though on the town hall that he, that you that his family, yourself, no doubt, told medical staff that all he needed was a 1% chance of survival and that uh, his fine determination would take it from there. Yeah, that was actually when they came down to ask us, they started asking us the question of do not resuscitate. Mm. Um, they were saying that once a patient's heart stops from the coronavirus, um, the results of life-saving efforts to get it restarted have not shown to be productive at all. Mm. And we basically were like, as long as he's got 1%, we want to give him his 1% to fight his way back. Luckily, we never got to that point of his heart stopping. But that was actually, the 1% was really to the um, do not resuscitate order when they started asking us that question as to whether we would just sign it off and say if his heart stops, that's it, and mm. do no more. Mm -hmm. so. the, other, the other thing uh, that, that, that I was struck by in that uh, in his presentation or explanation on the town hall, he said at one point there that um, the only reason that he's here today is because his body had finally had enough of the test treatments and all he could do was rip the ventilator tube from his throat and that his body would take it from there. Is that actually what happened? He, he did. Um, they had done... Uh, when, they're, when they're looking at trying to get someone off a ventilator, what they do is they basically shut the ventilator off to see if the patient can with, um, maintain their level of oxygen mm. sufficiently. And um, they tried it Wednesday. He failed failure was it dropped to 87 percent and as soon as it hits 87 percent they throw the machine back on mm -hmm. they don't wait to see how far it will fall um he failed it on wednesday he failed it on thursday he failed it on friday and then 
I actually got a phone call at 1.30 in the morning on t- Saturday morning, and it was Ivy, and he didn't have the tube in. And what had happened was he had come out of the sedation enough, and he actually removed the intubation tube himself. Wow. Which then, of course, set off alarms, scrambles, everything. Um, I've never really asked the doctors. I know they were not being able to use the sedation medication they wanted uh, due to a national shortage. Mm -hmm. So they were... They were kind of fighting with this other sedation medication that stayed in his body longer, so it was harder for them to control him coming out of the sedation. And, you know, I don't know whether he came a little bit more awake than they intended, or he just decided enough was enough and pull it out. And and the reason he says it the way he did was they were shocked. Because just a few hours before he had failed, he pulled that tube out, and he was maintaining it on his own. They kept him on oxygen through the nose, but all of a sudden, he was his body was maintaining it. So it just seemed like it got to a point where he his body decided it was time to take back over. Yeah, he, he knew his body knew that it could handle, it could take right. the oxygen. <laughs> Yeah. And that was a very, very, like a 15-second phone call that night. It was not much, but it, it was enough that I could see he was, because he did it on FaceTime, and I could see he did not have the tube down his throat. Well, I remember, and that was the Saturday before Easter. So, yeah, that was actually. That was a Saturday. I mean, really, that was like Easter Sunday, actually. It was at 1 o'clock. Well, Saturday morning. It was yeah, Saturday yeah. morning. So, what was interesting was even though I was in and out, you know, when you've got that, that ventilator on, you can't communicate with the doctors. You know, they can ask you a question, but, you know, how in the world do you communicate with them? You've got that damn thing down your throat. You can't even do sign language. And on top of that, your, your arms are kind of tied down point because your natural reaction would be to grab the ventilator so you're constrained to a point that you can't reach it but I remember waking up because you know even though I was in and out Steve mm-hmm. let me tell you something this is something I didn't share but I'll tell you what in the process you know, because you're in and out of this sedation and, and, you know, they wake you up to check your vitals and that kind of stuff. And you try to go back to, you know, back to where you were asleep. And I'm telling you, in between the hallucinations and all that other stuff that, that created, you know, such confusion, I could hear what was going on. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things I didn't share in that, in that town hall. Steve, I, if I heard... Uh, person next door didn't make it. Oh, the, 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 the infant in the other room, they had a code, you know, mm-hmm. when something happened, something tragic, and somebody didn't make it. And, I mean, I probably heard that more than 50 times. Easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, where people were in such critical condition and, and many others just didn't make it. And, I mean, that was, to me, 
in that bit of time, I'm telling you what, I just created a tremendous amount of of shock and and fear. But by the same token, um, you know, the only thing I could think of was coming home to my family. Mm-hmm. And and I remember when I finally just came out of it completely. You know, the the, the respirator was in my mouth and. And I couldn't kick it out, and I finally just twisted my. I remember clearly. I remember twisting my body enough to where my thumb could latch on to the respirator, mm-hmm. and just rip that some bitch out. Mm. Because I just felt like I was dying with that thing down my throat. Mm. I just couldn't. I couldn't. You know, I was just gasping for air, even though that thing was in my throat. So when I pulled it out, I'm telling you, every bell and whistle in that hospital went off. And there was 20 people or better just all over me. She's going off. Man, they just freaked out. The doctor said, I can't believe he got through that. I remember them talking. And he immediately put this oxygen mask on my face. Mm. And I'm telling you, they started pumping oxygen down my throat. And I can remember just taking deep breath, just gasping for air. And I tell you what, within, it had to be, you know, match stuff, we probably don't have a whole lot of concept of time. But it felt like maybe 20 minutes, all of my breathing was normal. Mm. The doctor his dad said, himself said, I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. I can't believe this guy. Mm-hmm. Just breathing so well, and everything's all his, mm. all his numbers just well. And Steve, now when he pulled it out, uh, my understanding, I'm not a medical person, mm. but apparently when they put the tube down your throat, then they inflate this bladder down in there because it's designed to keep the the, the lungs inflated. Mm-hmm. And normally, when they would pull this tube out, they would have deflated that and brought it out. Obviously, in his case, it didn't get deflated, and that's probably, that's what can cause damage to the vocal cords, and probably why his voice is still the way it is, Mm -hmm. Um, just because the tube comes right through the vocal cords, Mm -hmm. and he brought that all right back out, which is, you know, um, unfortunate, you know, you how, how do you gauge whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing to do? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's still here, so mm-hmm. obviously it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. But medically, that would never be recommended. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, you said not to, it's not to be recommended. <laughs> and you also said, um, when you said a moment ago about um, you could tell when um, other patients um, in the room or in the next room had not made it, is that is that why on the on the town hall you said that you were surrounded by death? You had a absolutely, mm. absolutely. Mm. He was in a private room the whole time. Okay. And that that whole ward was all private rooms. Right. Well, ICU is automatically all private rooms, and all other rooms. Once he left the ICU, because of him being there for that reason, it, he was always in a private room okay okay of course you hear and you hear the medical people talking you know mm-hmm. you know they come in and check your vitals or clean you up and stuff and you know they just they're taking conversations i guess they think you're, you're asleep or whatever or completely out right 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you just hear him talking. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, obviously they, they, I mean, they're just communicating and just having conversation and just, you know, feeling bad that, you know, a person didn't make it, you know, and, mm. And, and everybody was that was there. I mean, a lot of it was just they were just COVID patients. You said that you uh, the mon- the mental toll was that you had the side effects of confusion, helplessness, hallucination, and anxiety. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think part of it, of course, they were using hydroxychloroquine. But you see, Steve, you know, I just can't even stress enough. There's no cure for this. So pretty much, I was a lab rat. They were trying everything. They were throwing everything at me to try to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, your body's going to be able to fight it with the help of, you know, the stuff they use for malaria. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and everything else they could. But I'm telling you, man, one minute, oh, we, oh we're just going to start giving you zinc. Oh, no, we're going to give you... Mm-hmm. I mean, you praised Congressman Vala and, and the health officials for insisting for all the measures that, that, are, that are put in place now for social distancing and, um, and you're saying for, for those that are just not obeying that anybody that wants to go to the beach um, you, you're, you're really cons- you're, you feel those people are ne- negligent uh, because it's going to increase the, the, the amount of death is going to increase again Yes. Yes. You, you, you don't have to go very far. No. A thousand in one day? No. Was it no? Was it over the week? It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Go go look at those numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these things are climbing in the thousands. Mm-hmm. So it's not just my opinion. I yeah. mean, it's just common sense. Yeah. It's common sense. It's this. You know, it's, these, it's like these high school kids, you know, they, they think it'll never happen to them. Oh, it won't happen to me. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, you know, you see these people, I see them on, on, on Facebook. Mm. Oh, we you know you're violating our rights. And listen, man, we're trying to save your life. It has nothing to do with your rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then, here's, here's the real problem. You can quote me on this. Okay. The problem is, is they're busy complaining their, that their, their rights are violated. And they're out there, negligent, without a mask, ignoring the, the distancing that they're asking them to do for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Then they get sick, and they're on their deathbed. And they're busy blaming the president. They're busy blaming the government. They want a government handout. Mm-hmm. They want somebody to pay for their negligence. Mm-hmm. When, it, when if they would have just stayed home a little bit longer, so that so that the people who are trying to get a handle on this, right, mm-hmm. can, can 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 get their arms around this thing. You know, you've got county judges, you got mayors, you've got uh, governors, state reps, congressmen. You got all of these people trying to 
to round all of these folks up and you've got everybody, you know, with their political issues when this is a humanitarian issue. Mm-hmm. This is this is massive. Mm. Does any does anybody um, know how you contacted this? You in, on the town hall, you said that uh, maybe you touched something, got it on your hands. Uh, has anyone speculated what happened there? No, but you know what? I would, you know, David and I actually sat down, and I went through my work calendar because I travel quite a bit all over Texas. I work for a law firm in Round Rock, and uh, I. Uh, I do public relations and governmental affairs for a firm, and so we have several government accounts that that I manage, you know, with uh, judges, justice of the peace, and and different courts all over Texas. So I, you know, I visit clients on a daily basis, taking a lunch, taking a dinner, and going back 14 days, you know, we just. We couldn't find any. We could. There was even the law firm called all of these people, and nobody had been sick. Mm. So the only stops I remember making was in a town. I can't give you the town because everybody started focusing on it. Sure. But it was yeah. a small town in, in Central Texas on my way home that uh, I remember stopping to pump gas. Mm. And. You know, I stopped to pick up some barbecue, but the way that people handled the barbecue, they, they brought it to your, to your door. Mm. To your, you know, they were in gloves and masks and, you know, everything was very clean. Mm. And, uh, but I know for a fact that that was the only stop I made. Right. So it had to have been, um, I finished pumping gas and, you know, it's kind of a blur really, but I could have very much just scratch my beard or scratch my face and bam there I was there you go yeah yeah because I remember going into the to the store and I went to the men's room and then I washed my hands and dried them with the dryer mm-hmm. so I did wash my hands mm-hmm. so I had to touch my face it had to have been you know a fomite infection mm-hmm. that, that's the only thing it could be but that's- amazingly enough uh, David didn't get it, and it was Ross home. Mm-hmm. I had a son that just got in. He was home, and he didn't get it. Yeah. And then our other boy that came in, he didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And we had seen another son and his wife the weekend before yeah. you started getting sick, and they never got sick. Yeah, so the people that were... See, that's the interesting thing, is that, you know, you could be carrying this thing, and not even... Obviously, you don't know it, but... You just don't know where this thing's going to It's like Russian roulette, man. You don't know. That's the fear with these people. Stop. With everybody going back out away from the social uh, distancing, mm. my biggest fear is, you know, you're going to, you could take it home to your parents or somebody who's more susceptible. Um, you know, it may not be you that gets sick. And, and uh, you know, we have folks that are in senior citizen centers that have been locked down since mid-March, you know, um, we couldn't even send Grandma flowers for her birthday because they won't accept deliveries, but it's the safest thing you can do for them mm-hmm. because they're at such a high risk. High risk. If they catch it, their likelihood of surviving is, is very small, if at all. Right. And how many days be- between you uh, touching that gas pump and perhaps catching it there 
How many more days before you were in the hospital? Yeah. He, he was that last trip was on Wednesday the 18th he started coughing on Thursday the 19th and went in the hospital the next Thursday so I guess eight days yeah so but you know and it may not have been that day either no no but have been another day, you know with 14 days most of us can't remember exactly what we were doing 14 days ago no not no. To, to sit there and itemize the day. And and the fact that you've got type two diabetes did that make your chances of survival even greater? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. For some reason, that that is one of the big ones that is a big complicator for it. For some reason. Yes. We're based in the Rio Grande Valley as a news operation. Do you have any links down here? Oh yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Brownsville, Texas. Oh okay. Yeah, I'm originally from Brownsville, Texas. Uh, went to elementary school at Russell Elementary and went to Stell Junior High School and mm-hmm. graduated from Pace High School in uh, 1981. Mm-hmm. And so, and then uh, transferred to, then went moved on to Texas. Fantastic. Well, Ivy and David, thank you so much for today's, for this interview. Um, we'll help tell your story. A harrowing story, but one that uh, people need to to learn, learn about, and learn from. So I really appreciate it, and um, I'm going to thank Letty for for connecting me to you. This was part one of a two part telephone town hall hosted by Congressman Filimon Bella to provide an update on the novel coronavirus pandemic. You can listen to part two of Congressman Vela's telephone town hall on the Rio Grande Guardian website. Part two includes a panel of experts answering questions for constituents about small business relief, unemployment insurance, stimulus payments, and the impact of the virus on the border.